Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. Eight babies. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> That's not a miracle. Broccoli has 12 essential vitamins and minerals. Now that's a miracle. Those are just babies. That was a public service announcement brought to you by the broccoli people, whoever they are, trying to get you to eat broccoli. As they should. I, I love broccoli. Do you love broccoli, Sabri? I like what it looks like. <laughs> okay. Tiny, tiny green trees. And, you know, there's a reason they probably needed a PSA to sell it. But now someone has perhaps a, a really miraculous broccoli they want to sell you. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in one second. Today, we are talking about biology and business and whether the logic of business and the logic of biology are working against each other when it comes to our food supply or whether they are working together. Do we want the logic of the market in our food supply? To help us answer that question, we have Dina Shanker, who's a food reporter at Quartz, to tell us about green vegetables. Hi, Dina. Hi. Dina, the broccoli of our dreams is coming to a store shelf near us in the next couple years. Tell us about it. Well, it's called Beneforte Broccoli. It has extra uh, glucuraphanin, which oh, is... Oh, yes, glucuraphanin. It, yeah, it's it's a great... Love that. <laughs> so, so it's a great phytonutrient that our body converts into sulfurophane, which has been connected to everything from lowering cholesterol to fighting cancer. When people talk about broccoli as being a cancer fighter, that's what they're referring to. Okay, so it has mega amounts of goodness in it. That's right. Extra goodness. Even more goodness than a typical already really good piece of broccoli. But the other special thing is they managed to make this extra good broccoli without genetically modifying it in the way we think of when we think about GMOs, right? That's right. There was no genetic engineering in terms of lifting a genome from one organism and putting it into another organism. It was actually made just with good old-fashioned breeding, the kind that farmers have been doing for centuries. So the reason we are talking about this broccoli has to do with who made it and why. Dina, tell us who is responsible for this mega broccoli. Monsanto. These are the guys known for genetic modification of soybeans and corn, the company that some see as a monstrous criminal against nature, and other people see as a beacon of scientific progress and food for all. But why have they shifted to this old method of breeding plants? Probably market pressure. If you look around, it's hard to go a day without seeing some story about people choosing healthier foods. Companies like General Mills and PepsiCo are... They're retooling old classics. They're making tricks, that brightly colored kid cereal, all natural. Um, Which just seems crazy. Yeah, you, the colors are no longer as bright, which we'll see if kids mind. Um, <laughs> it's clear that customers are changing their tastes and paying a lot more attention to what's actually in their food. There's also a backlash against GMOs themselves, at least in like the produce aisle, right? Well, You really won't find GMOs in the produce aisle. GMOs are really in corn and soy that get processed into the foods that we eat, like Fritos or Coca-Cola. But you will see that non-GMO labels show up all over the place. And actually, a recent report from Package Facts said that the non-GMO label globally reached $200 billion in sales in 2014. And one of the funny things about that label is you'll see it on things that 
wouldn't have GMOs in them in the first place. But people are so scared of GMOs that they want to make sure that they're nowhere near anything that they're eating. And we should just say for the record that there is not scientific evidence to support the idea that GMOs are bad for you as a category. That's right. It's... um really seems like every day there's another uh, study that says, don't worry about eating GMOs. That said, people are just really uncomfortable with uh, tinkering with foods in that way. As I mentioned before, where you lift a genome from one organism and put it in another, which is very different from just crossbreeding. And it's interesting, though, that even though GMOs themselves, maybe scientists don't think that they're a problem for people, but they create a problem of biodiversity, which is what we really want to talk about down the road. And it's in part because Monsanto is such a big company. Uh, how much do they sell? So definitely uh, corn and soybeans are the bread and butter for Monsanto for both the seeds and the traits because they patent the traits. So you don't even have to buy the whole seed. You can you can just uh, go for the traits. And in corn, that comes out to $6.4 billion in 2014. And in soybeans, it was $2.1 billion. Meanwhile, for vegetable seeds, it was a lot lower. It was only $867 million. But um, while that number might sound low compared to the others, and it is, it really represents a growth opportunity more than anything else. The thing that I find interesting here is that On the one hand, the pressure of the market has pushed Monsanto to offer up a new variety of plant, right? A new variety that's healthier for us, that's not GMO. But there's a parallel market pressure. There's a parallel economic logic that you make the argument for, Dina, that this could limit genetic diversity and create too centralized and homogenous of a food supply. Why do you make that argument? So if we look at what Monsanto did in corn and soy, we see that now in the United States, Monsanto has enormous control over corn and soy. That in 2009 AP investigation found Monsanto patented traits in 95% of the country's soybeans and 80% of the country's corn. So that is not good for genetic diversity. We don't want to see the same thing happen in vegetables. Can you give us some examples of how a lack of genetic diversity in the food system is going to create a problem for us? Sure. There have been at least two major examples about what happens when you lose that diversity in the past couple of hundred years. So uh, the Irish potato famine is a really great example. Huge portions of the Irish population was subsisting on really only one kind of potato. So when the weather hurt that potato crop, it wiped out all the potatoes everywhere. And that ended up killing an estimated one in eight Irish. The other example in recent history was in uh, the U.S. uh, in 1970, there was a widespread corn blight. And um, it was estimated to have reduced yields by 20 to 25 percent across the country. So why did this happen? 85 to 90 percent of the corn grown in the U.S. in that time had a gene that uh, made the corn easier to breed. But they didn't know that that same gene made the corn susceptible to a fungus that until then had really just been a minor disease. And so something that would have been just a small problem became a much bigger one. 
when you have a monoculture like that, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. And if that basket breaks, you're basically out of food. Now, you guys might want to cut what I'm about to say. Is it juicy? Because we'll keep it if it is. <laughs> it's just a little weird. But if oh, you want to go, if you want to go sci-fi, you can see you can see this in apocalypse movies as it applies to the human population. You know, there's always somebody that has that immunity to whatever crazy disease is killing everyone out, and it's like those three people now have to repopulate the earth. We don't want that to happen in vegetables. We don't want all the vegetables to be susceptible to something and then be left with three that can handle the uh, the zombie bug that's killing everything. I love this example. <laughs> so the idea is that, okay, yes, uh, you know, economics can drive a company to offer up new varieties, but if they become really successful and those are the only varieties we have, we have the monoculture problem. Is that right? That's exactly right. So with this broccoli, for example, you know, if everybody starts seeing... Um, oh, at the supermarket, look, at this broccoli is really extra healthy. So this is the broccoli I'm going to buy. That sounds great, right, for you and your family. So you buy that broccoli. Well, then the supermarket say, okay, well, this is our most popular broccoli. Let's start stocking more of this. Then, you know, eventually this becomes the most popular broccoli out there. And part of Monsanto's plan is to make this broccoli available around the world year round. So while we might say, well, okay, so, you know, this is a great broccoli, but surely it can't uh, be available both in South America and Australia and New York all at the same time because there are different weather conditions and, uh, Farmers don't all grow the same exact crop all the time. Well, that's really what Monsanto is trying to do. I mean, it's a global company, and it wants to create a global product. It has multiple variations on the same seed so that uh, the seed can be grown in different places around the world uh, in different climates, providing that kind of year-round product, sort of like a Coca-Cola or Dorito. Thank you for teaching us all about broccoli, Dina. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me talk about zombies. Dana Schenker's food and zombie reporter for Quartz. You think I could get them to change that? Okay, so Monsanto is using a non-GMO product to break into the produce aisle. To understand what this could mean for our food and the markets, let's take a look at what Monsanto already did with corn and soybeans. Here to help us is Philip Howard. He researches the food industry at Michigan State University. Hi, Philip. Hi. So let's get to the point. Is there a logic in the seed and crop industry that is going to limit the genetic diversity of the food supply moving forward? Well, I think it's a very real possibility when you have fewer and fewer companies controlling the seed supply. You know, we're already seeing the genetic diversity of, um, of our seeds declining. So we know the lack of biodiversity can be a problem. We saw it with the Irish potato famine and more recently in the U.S. with the 1970 corn blight. Monsanto claims it's protecting biodiversity with seed banks that farmers could turn to uh, if another epidemic wiped out future crops. Do you think these seed banks are actually going to address that kind of problem? Uh, only a tiny bit. I mean, the, the seed banks, um, particularly the ones that are storing seeds and not replanting them, you know, those are for you know a really drastic emergency situation. It's not maintaining the year-to-year the -year viability of a lot of seeds. So, uh, I mean, they can get a lot of public relations mileage about these very tiny efforts, um, 
but it kind of takes attention away from the larger trend that we're uh, having a narrower, narrow, narrower diversity of our, our food supply. Monsanto has been criticized for anti-competitive practices. Um, do you want to run through what those criticisms are and, uh, and whether we can expect to see more of them? Yeah, some of the criticisms are that they have uh, pressured um, competitors to maintain high prices for genetically engineered traits, uh, that they pressured their seed dealers to reduce the varieties that are available so that farmers uh, can't get conventional seed or they can't get genetically engineered seed with just a few traits. They are almost forced to buy uh, uh, seeds with a lot of traits. Um, you know, there have been some surveys in Illinois that have shown that it's very difficult to access conventional seed for the farmers who want that. Wait, how are they able to reduce the variety of other seeds offered? How do they do that? Well, they simply give incentives to their seed dealers to push Monsanto varieties. Um, and, you know, a sharp seed dealer will drop some of the non-Monsanto varieties if they get better payback from the Monsanto varieties. Uh, they get incentives to bundle Monsanto's seeds with, with other Monsanto products like their um, glyphosate, their Roundup herbicide. Uh, you know, for example, Monsanto had a huge market share for glyphosate even three, four years after their patent expired. What's, uh, what's glyphosate? Uh, it's an herbicide that, uh, because of genetically engineered traits, can be sprayed right on top of the crop, so it will kill all the weeds but leave the crop standing. Philip Howard is an associate professor of community sustainability at Michigan State University. Thanks, Phil. Thanks. Okay, so we've looked at the biology of biodiversity in the food supply, but let's talk economics for a bit. Are crops going to be cheaper for consumers? Is there a market drive towards less biodiversity? To answer these questions, we have Chris Leonard. He's a fellow at the New America Foundation, and he reported on Monsanto for the Associated Press. Hi, Chris. Hi. Dina talked to us about this new broccoli, about generally new crops with superfood qualities that are targeted directly at the consumer. But this is actually a new approach for Monsanto. That's correct, Chris? Right now, Monsanto has has developed all these traits, you know, these patented genetically engineered traits that are in the kind of staple crops we eat, like corn and soybeans. And when Monsanto first started doing this 20 years ago, there were all these promises that the company was going to make traits that would really appeal to consumers, like you know, super nutritious watermelons and, and things like this. But what the company has ended up focusing on are these traits that really appeal to farmers and not consumers. You know, most of Monsanto's traits have to do with what kind of pesticide you can spray on a crop. And it's all these traits that are focused on making food as cheap and plentiful as possible. So the company really doesn't have much of a good track record on creating products that appeal directly to consumers. If you can engineer these big staple commodity crops like corn and soybeans in a way that's going to appeal to farmers, you know, you have opened up a tremendous market. And so that's where Monsanto has invested a lot of its money and reaped a, a huge windfall from doing that. Yeah. Did it save the farmers money? You said oh, it was marketed man. to the farmers to save them money. And I'm <laughs> curious, was that a lie or is that true? Okay. So it's true. At least it was true. Particularly this technology, this gene called Roundup Ready. I mean, that's Monsanto's bread and butter. And it's this gene that makes crops uh, resistant 
to Monsanto's herbicide Roundup, right? So is it glucocose something? Glyphosate. Glyph- totally. Glyphosate. There we go. Um, that did save money because all of a sudden you could just go spray your entire field with glyphosate. There was none of this, you know, nitpicking of picking a pesticide that would kill a weed but not your corn. So that saved a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason farmers embraced this stuff really quickly and, and, and widespread. Now, the problem is Monsanto really developed a monopoly position and, and they started jacking up prices really sharply. And there is a legitimate question out there now as to whether or not farmers are saving money by using this. But there's no question that back in the 90s, yeah, this saved farmers time and money. And presumably consumers money as well. Yes, Yes. But, you know, um, I hate to be like a downer all the time, but, you know, I mean, the, the the price between what the farmer gets paid for crops and what you and I pay for food in the grocery store, uh, the gap between those two things has been widening constantly since the 90s. So I guess farmers save money, but at the same time, middlemen companies like Monsanto make more money, the grocers make more money. But okay, I'll I'll concede the point that it saved the consumers some degree of money over the years. In the meantime, they've gotten a huge market share. Has there been an unintentional abuse of that? This isn't unintentional at all. It's part of a very smart playbook that Monsanto started putting into practice in the 90s. And the whole point of the playbook was to to develop a monopoly position in the market that the company could exploit to raise prices for farmers and increase its profit margins. I mean, that's why you become a monopoly. Nitty-gritty, they're a duopoly. Right now in the United States, there's a duopoly. You've got Monsanto and DuPont that control the entire seed market between them. And when you look at the crop, okay, Monsanto's patented genes are inserted in about 80% of all the corn grown in the United States and in about 90% of all the soybeans grown in the United States. That's a monopoly position for genetically engineered traits that are now in, in all these crops. Over about 10 years, they use these patented genes as a lever to buy out all these formerly independent seed companies. They spent about $12 billion. They bought 30 giant seed companies. They rolled up the market, and now they control the market. How does the company capitalize on all the research and new technology it's developed around breeding crops? First of all, what they do is they patent a gene, Roundup-ready gene that you can put into a corn plant, and it makes it immune to glyphosate. Fine. So then, if I'm a seed company and I want to sell this patented gene, I have to sign a contract with Monsanto to sell or breed with their patented product. Let me just give you one really important example. If I've got a a stalk of corn and it's got one of Monsanto's genes in it, I sign a contract and that prohibits any other patented gene from being inserted into that corn stalk. It's, It's very similar to when Microsoft said, you know, we sell Windows and we've got a monopoly position with Windows and we're going to keep Netscape off of this platform. That is exactly what Monsanto has done with the corn stock. It's going to keep off that platform competitors' genes unless those competitors sign a deal with Monsanto. If it is so akin to what Microsoft was doing in the 90s and had a huge antitrust case, how come we don't see regulators going after it now? Well, so this is where I start to sound like really glib and and everything, but the truth is um, there are no antitrust cops on this beat. 
You know, the, the people who should be enforcing antitrust laws would be attorneys uh, at the Department of Justice. That's, you know, the, basically the agency that would have uh, oversight over this, and they, they're not doing their job. I think it's very politically difficult to bring a large antitrust suit against a large, well-funded company. You know, the Department of Justice launched an investigation into Monsanto's tactics, and then quietly dropped it after more than two years of investigations without a word of explanation. And I really think the true answer to that question is that there are not vigorous enforcers on the federal level on the antitrust beat. It's just really that simple. You know, farmers don't benefit when they don't have choice from what companies to buy their seeds, and that's they don't have choice now. And consumers don't benefit when just two companies have such entrenched control over the market for seeds. It's, it's really not good for anybody. All right. Chris Leonard is a Schmidt Family Foundation fellow at New America. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. So, you know, what I keep coming back to is that the logic of the food supply is not the logic of biology. The logic of the market is not the logic of diversity. These things seem to be opposed to one another. And I, it, it seems to be something that might be overlooked. Definitely. I mean, I think this is like a very classic parable of capitalism where Monsanto in the 90s like invented this really kind of miraculous product. This Roundup herbicide is like sort of magic. If you had had it 200 years ago, you would say this is a magical plant wizard. But then as it becomes part of this profit-seeking enterprise, you know, what Chris described with these teams of lawyers and marketers, you get this kind of monster that has like a self-replicating logic that we see again and again whenever a food supply becomes a big industrial thing, like Dina mentioned with the Irish potato famine or U.S. corn blight. Uh, And what really bums me out is that even though it appears that there's pretty good indications of anti-competitive stuff that Monsanto is doing and certainly sort of cartel-like behaviors and intellectual property rights abuses perhaps, uh, that no one seems to be even looking at them. I mean, it seems like the the systems we have that are supposed to rein in the bad economic consequences that we're talking about aren't working in this case. Right. But that, I mean, that could be because they're not doing anything wrong. Um, or, I mean, uh, other observers will say, you know, they're, they've reined in their anti-competitive behavior because of uh, those investigations. But Monsanto doesn't seem worried by these concerns. A spokesperson told Dina for her story on quartz that its plant breeders, quote, breed in natural resistance to certain pests and or diseases, and that the company, quote, sells dozens of different broccoli products to meet the needs of different growing regions and consumer preferences around the world. The spokesperson also said that we are one of many other vegetable seed companies that develop broccoli seeds. Farmers have many choices when it comes to the broccoli seeds they purchase and plant. The company also noted, as we mentioned before, that it keeps seed banks to preserve a, quote, rare and extensive collection of vegetable seeds from around the world. Look, I don't know if sponsorship of seed banks is not enough. I don't know that it is enough. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, all we have to go on is is the monoculture situation that we have now, and those responsible for it are expanding into other crops. That's all we can sort of observe right now. And now for something completely different. 
At Quartz, we report surprising discoveries, the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. And today, there's a science fiction movie taking place in the ocean off the western coast of North America. Yes, it's the blob. Scientists are calling a abnormal huge patch of warm ocean in the Pacific the blob because they don't know quite why it's there. It's bringing in foreign species. It may have something to do with ice storms in Texas and warm Alaskan winters. And with El Nino coming back, the Pacific Ocean is only going to get weirder and warmer, I guess. This is not El Nino. This is a different thing? This is a different thing. This is a, I guess El Nino is an atmospheric phenomenon, and this has to do with ocean currents. Hakai Magazine reports ocean scientists at Oregon State University uh, among other places, have been studying this and uh, are kind of baffled by it. But what it's doing is disturbing typical ocean mixing, which means nutrients remain deep and inaccessible to surface creatures that are essential to the food web. Oh, no. Those poor little surface creatures. It's apparently the type of thing you might expect to happen once in a millennium. Wow. So, hey, tell your kids. Tell your grandkids. It's the blob. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, El Nino is caused by a slight uh, warming of the surface water temperatures in a different part of the Pacific. And if El Nino has all that effect on uh, everything from snowstorms in Washington, D.C. to drought in Texas, I wonder what the blob is going to do. I hope it won't absorb me into it, screaming. <laughs> and that's all the time we have. If you want to know more about genetically engineered broccoli or blobs, or anything else happening in the economy today, check out Marketplace.org and QZ.com. And while you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start the day. And by the way, we'd love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like and what you don't, and what topics we should take on. We've gotten great feedback from you guys uh, already, and keep it coming. Email us at mpqz at Marketplace.org or leave a message for us at 802 802- Four three zero six seven seven nine, and reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Sabritree, and Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Uh, I've actually received a number of requests to also spell Sabri's name, so it's at S A B R I Tree Sabritree. Jake Gorski made our theme song. Thank you, Jake. Thank you to our dedicated producer Claire Tennisketter and to our beloved overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. People don't know how to spell Sabritree just automatically. That's so weird. We live in a strange world. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then. Bye.